You know, we are quite interesting creatures. On the one hand, some people are so utterly predictable. You know how they'll respond. You know what they're almost going to say. You guess, and most times with great certainty, what's going to happen in a certain situation. People are so predictable. But even though there's some people who are that predictable, most of us, including those who are predictable, struggle with inconsistency. Inconsistency in some sense, which impacts us in a number of ways. As a parent, that's what drives a kid nuts. They've seen it done a hundred times before in this way. They've seen a certain rule or a certain reaction or a certain discipline take place, and they learn to play the game. Until the parent's inconsistent, then the child says, what just happened here? They go nuts because parents become inconsistent. But not just parents, spouses. This is the way you've reacted for 10 years. Why are you acting differently now? Or you used to do that, but now you don't anymore. When someone's inconsistent, it causes strife. It causes confusion. You think, who are you? you you've done this for 20-some years, and now, all of a sudden, it's not a midlife crisis. You're beyond that. What's happening to you? Inconsistency messes with relationships, but not just parents or spouses, but friends, employees, employer relationships. Inconsistency impacts all of our horizontal relationships. But most of all, it impacts the two greatest commandments that we ever have. To love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Our inconsistency impacts that, and not just in a way of the way you reacted is maybe different than before, but inconsistency in the sense of uh, prone to bias or favoritism. We might be a gracious person for a certain type of person. We might be really kind to a certain age of people, children, and you might be really rude to adults. Inconsistency really does harm the two greatest commandments that we are supposed to follow, loving God and loving others. When it comes to loving God, inconsistency affects our relationship with him. The beautiful thing about God is he never changes. And his compassions, they fail not. Great is his faithfulness that is never shifting. But yet, here we are, go through days or seasons where we won't pray, we don't read our Bible, we don't uh, have any of the means of grace, evangelism, uh, meditating on his word, fasting. All those things will be quite inconsistent in our life, often based on circumstance, based on a season, based on a feeling. But yet God never changes. But that inconsistency in us does impact the way that we interact with our God and Father. It does. And it, it also impacts that second thing. The second greatest commandment is how we love and serve other people for his glory. Because of the proneness, the, the inclination to favoritism or to bias. This was certainly a problem for the early believers. Um, you don't have to turn there, but James in chapter 2 speaks of the problem, which I think Mark chapter 5 addresses. And so that's why, um, let me just read a portion of James chapter 2 for you uh, as we about to dive into Mark 5. But here's what it says in James 2. My brothers, show no partiality. Do not show favoritism as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, 
And if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and you say, oh, sit here in a good place. Well, you say to the poor man, stand over there or sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? And have you uh, and, and become judges with evil thoughts? It carries on later, it says, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to scripture, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. It was a problem. The, the idea of favoritism and bias. And so the reality is we want to be holy, hating sin, including the sin of partiality or favoritism. If we're to be Christ's ambassadors, his representatives, to be like him and living like him and for him in this world, then we ought to be consistent in our compassion. We ought to be consistent in our compassion, as exactly as Jesus was, as we're going to see in this passage this morning. Here in Mark chapter 5, uh, verse 21 through the end, uh, it intertwines two vastly different stories. There's a lot of similarities to these two people's lives, but, but the contrast is there on purpose. And, and you cannot untangle these two stories. They are included together. They are they're one on purpose. They're meant to be read together to show us this contrast of people and yet the consistency of Jesus' compassion. There's this contrast in the world, a contrast to all human eyes, all understanding, an opportunity for favoritism or bias. And yet Jesus is consistent in his compassion to both of these people. Let's read this beautiful passage. If you have your Bible, uh, look at verse 21 in Mark chapter 5. It says this, When Jesus had crossed again from the, uh, in the boat to the other side, a great cr crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then, one, uh, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. And he implored him earnestly, saying, My Little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hand on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all she had. And she was no better, rather, she was growing, growing worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd. And touched his garment. She said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she had been healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you? And yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, she came in fear and trembling as she fell down before him. She told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? 
But overhearing what was said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put all of them outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in to where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the little girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them uh, that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. This is an amazing intertwining of two people's lives. Two vastly different people here in this story. We have on one hand a man, the other hand a woman. Even in their time you think of the differences between men and women and the social status of men and women is, is vast. But this man, he's a wealthy man. And this woman is poor and bankrupt. So we're beginning to see the divide already. This man is respected. It says there in verse 21, uh, sorry, in verse 22, he was a ruler in the synagogue. He was a ruler. He, he was, that was a voted in position. People respected him. They honored this man. And what was she? Rejected. Rejected. Well, he was a ruler, she was a nobody. He was honored, she was ashamed. He was a leader in the synagogue and she was unwelcome in the synagogue. This, there is a chasm between these two people. An opportunity at bias to say, well, Jairus, a ruler in the synagogue, this man is, could make me look good. I will just choose to only focus on him. Get out of here. Get the crowd back. I have a mission and let no one else interact with me. But it's not Jesus, is it? He, he is not a, a, um, taking opinions or taking sides based on her status or who she is in her world. What the world sees her as rejected, poor, nobody who's ashamed of what is going on in her body and unwelcomed in the synagogue. Instead, he sees two souls before him. Both of these souls desperate. Desperate. Both of these souls expressing faith. And some say weak faith. Jairus said, you have to come and touch my daughter. What Jesus, we know he could have said the word. And she would have been healed. But so Jairus is thinking, well, I've seen Jesus lay hands on people. That has to happen. And so his faith was shallow at best, but it was, it was great. Think of the cost of Jairus coming to Jesus. So he was a ruler in the synagogue. The synagogue, you know, that's full of all these Pharisees that hate Jesus with a passion. Jairus wasn't necessarily a Pharisee, but he was among them. He was respected by them. So for him to leave that environment and to come pressing through the crowd to get to Jesus in utter desperation, Jesus, the one that all of his colleagues hated, he's going to him. And he's going to him in faith, desperate. He comes and it says, amazingly, uh, verse 22, 
then came to him one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. He physically, in front of everybody, humbled himself, made himself nothing before Jesus. This ruler of the synagogue, surrounded by Pharisees every other day, now comes to Jesus, falling at his feet in desperation. Verse 23 shows us this desperation further. It says, he implored him, he begged him. And it's a, it's a, the word in the Greek is not just one time, he was begging him. Over and over again, begging him earnestly, implored him earnestly. And he said with such great heartbreak, my little girl is at the point of death. Can you think of that? A loved one at the point of death and you being willing to leave their side. You don't know when they're going to die. You don't know the moment. You wouldn't, you'd want to take every single moment you have there. And yet this man, Jairus, has such faith such desperation that he leaves the bedside of his dying daughter, who he loves deeply. He leaves her, travels to find Jesus, falling at Jesus' feet. He is begging Jesus. And he calls her my little daughter. She's 12. He's had 12 years with this precious girl of his. And now he's desperate. He's come Verse 23, come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Come, you, you are able. Are you willing? He was desperate before Jesus. So, verse 24 tells us, Jesus went with him. And a great crowd followed and thronged about him, was still climbing all over him. And then you have this woman, also utterly desperate. 12 years with a bleeding hemorrhage. A disorder that has kept her out of the temple. Has made her a social outcast. She's all by herself. She, there in verse 25, there was this woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And verse 26, who had suffered much under many physicians. And she had spent all she had. Please, if you just take my money just to heal me, make me well, you can do it. All right, I'll give you all I have. I'll give you my home. I'll give you my family inheritance. I'll give you whatever it is. Make me live. She was bankrupt to try to live. All that she had had, it said, she gave away. She spent it to try to be made well. But the end of verse 26 is sad. But she was no better, but rather she grew worse. And when, verse 27, she had heard the reports of Jesus, she'd heard what he was doing and was able to do, she came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his garment. She touched his garment because she believed, verse 28 shows us, if even I touch his garment, I will be made well. She was desperate. She was desperate, afraid, alone. Both of these desperate people, and yet Jesus' response to them was not based on social status, wealth, welcome in the temple or not. He looked at them as two desperate souls. How many times have we preferred one person over another, given our time to people that are easier on us, uh, not someone who is a real drain 
on us, on society? How, how much time do we spend with those who are considered a drain on society or outcasts in our society? To someone who, who struggles with schizophrenia, have you chosen coffee with them over the coffee with your best friend lately? Have you gone out of your way to say, oh, I have time for lunch with someone. I'm going to go spend it with a homeless person rather than a friend. Most of us prefer, we have a bias, we show favoritism to those who are easy, those who are put together. There's those stories, you know, I don't know if they're ever true, where a, you know, a visiting preacher sits on the steps of a church dressed up like a homeless guy. I'm sure you've heard some of those stories. Everybody walks by him, ignores him, until the service starts and he walks up and he's the preacher and he, you know, guilt trips everybody. Like, you walk by me as a homeless man. But they would have honored him if he was standing there in a suit. It's true, though. It shows the true reality, and, and that's exactly what's on display in James chapter 2. Is, uh, it says, you, you welcome into your place of worship, into your assembly, the, the man who's dressed finely and he's got gold on. You say, oh man, well, come on. You're, you're obviously very important. You're special to us. Come. Yeah, we welcome you. And then the one who's poor and homeless and his clothes are got holes in them. He's got dirty hair. He's not washed in months. How quick are you to say, come, have the honored seat at my table. I don't care about your smell. Come. Human beings, we are sinful in how we have bias. We are. We choose what's easy. We choose what is nice. It's, it's sinful, James 2 says. We ought not show that sin of partiality. And we see Jesus here before him, the same situation. A rich, popular man and a bleeding outcast of a woman. And he, he doesn't pick or choose. He is never shows partiality. He says, you both are desperate in this moment and I'm, both going, I'm, I'm going to have compassion on you both. His compassion was consistent, as should ours be. We ought to think about our compassion. Is it only towards the easy? Only towards the comfortable? Only towards those who are in my age category or, or share same interests as me? Or am I willing to stoop? Or get out of my zone or, or learn something new about other people so that they may have compassion that has flown to me. You, you think that's exactly what we're meant to do. When we are recipients of anything from God, it is meant to flow through us to others. Are we hindering that to any blocked channels? Well, not to them. Not to that type of people. I'm, I'm too old, so I can't talk to teenagers. Or, I don't know anything about mental illness. I, I'm just not going to go down that path. It terrifies me. I'm just not going to go there. Oh, that couple, I'm not, oh, they just don't dress, I don't know. Right? Like, they have a history. I know their family history. They got addictions. Ugh. Like, where, where, are, where are our blockages? And I know there is some in each of us. I have blockages in my own heart. And so we, we need to have God evaluate our own hearts and say, where am I showing favoritism and partiality? Even in terms of who am I going to minister to? That's why there's this idea in the world. There, you can look it up online. It's called the 1040 window. In the world where there is uh, an unreached strip of the world that people aren't going to to preach the gospel. That's why there's still unreached people groups. Because they are the hardest to reach. They're the most hostile towards Christians. They're the most brutal, disgusting places to live. That's why missionaries aren't going there. They're staying in nice, cushy North America. Oh, we'll go to England, plant some churches, do, let's do Germany. 
Why not go to Saudi Arabia? Why not go to the slums of India? It's because it's too hard and we show the favoritism. Well, I prefer, because I'm a sinful human being, I prefer what's easy and clean and comfortable. That's wrong. If God is leading us somewhere, if God brings people to us, we ought to be consistent in our compassion, just as Jesus was. These two stories are intertwined on purpose. And you see, Jesus has compassion on them both. This woman, when she touched Jesus' garments, she was made well. Verse 29 says, Immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she had been healed of her disease. Twelve years hemorrhaging the exhaustion, the iron level, right? If you think if you lose any extended amount of blood, this woman felt alive. She had felt like she had been dying for 12 years. And then here's this man who's enjoyed 12 years of life with his daughter who is now about to die. The 12 years on both ends. This woman has been in agony 12 years. This man has been in delight for 12 years, but now faces the death of his daughter. But Jesus made her well. I love Jesus, verse 30. Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him. That's incredible. He immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? His disciples laughed. Like, are you serious? The crowd is crushing you like it always is. Like people are like crammed sardines here. And you ask who touched you and who touched your shirt? That's what they said. He said in verse 31, and he looked around and he didn't didn't even address their comments. He looked around in verse 32. He looked around to see who had done it. Jesus knew who did it, by the way. He knows all things. He knows the hearts of every person that was crushing him in that moment. He knew who was there, but he looked around for her. He didn't just say, oh, well, that's cool. She's healed. Let's carry on. I got a mission. Jairus' daughter needs us. No, he stopped. He stopped so he could stoop to this woman's level, speak to this outcast. Incredible. He stopped. He wanted to see her. He wanted to know where this woman of faith was. He wanted the crowd to see her. He wanted Jairus to see. He wanted them to see that there was no, he wanted us to see that there was no partiality, that he was consistent in his compassion. Verse 33, the woman, knowing what had happened to her, she came. She came. She knew. And she wasn't just going to let this moment pass her by, but she came in fear and trembling, with awe and wonder, amazement, And she, in the same way that Jairus did, fell down before him. Fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Imagine this woman who was a total outcast, total reject in every area of life. And he uses an endearing term to her, daughter, you belong. I love you. I care for you. Daughter, your faith has made you well. It's your faith. It wasn't my garments. It wasn't this crowd. It wasn't some magic. It was faith and and faith in me. So go in peace and be healed of your disease. His compassion on her was impressive. The crowds would have been shocked looking at Jesus interact with her. 
So when he's compassionate to you and I, do we then take that compassion and extend it to others who may not fit our mold? Are we those who take the compassion and keep it for ourselves? We realize that no matter whether we come from a family of wealth and a ruler in the synagogue or, or a situation like this woman, Jesus welcomes, Jesus loves, Jesus is compassionate on us. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. All. There is no set of class of person. There is no race of person. There is no distinction. Jew, Gentile, male, female, rich, poor, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And he's compassionate on all as we ought to be. And when he's compassionate to us, we respond like she did falling down before him, trembling in fear and awe and wonder at who he is and why he would come to us and touch us and interact with us and and welcome us in. And we embrace him as our Savior, as one who has touched our lives, who has healed not necessarily a physical disease as this woman has or as he will with Jairus' daughter, but in our spiritual condition, our spiritual deadness, our spiritual um, sickness and illness, our disease that's in us, we come to him, and he has compassion on us, and he heals our wounds. He heals our, our sin sickness, all because of compassion. And what's interesting to me is, well, verse 35, look, it says, while he was still speaking to this woman, saying, daughter, your faith has made you well, while he's still speaking, there came from the ruler's house who said, your daughter's dead. While he's telling this woman, you have life. A messenger comes, says to the ruler, Jairus, your daughter's dead. Hope you said your goodbye. That's it. Can you imagine Jairus in that moment? I should have been there. Was this a mistake? What? What's going to happen? And so they said, don't, don't bother Jesus anymore. Don't bother this teacher any further. But verse 36 says, overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue. What's amazing to me is in the next few verses, it refers to him not by name anymore. It just refers to him by his position again. The ruler of the synagogue. The ruler of the synagogue. But overhearing, he said to the, verse 36, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to go back. Don't be afraid to let me come. Your precious little girl is safe in my arms. So verse 37 says, He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother James, getting rid of the crowd. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and there was a huge commotion. It was common in those days when someone was on their deathbed to even hire performers to come outside the house and wail and weep. So you looked important. It was common in that environment, especially of a ruler of a synagogue in, in the upper classes, to have performers come. Whether Jairus ordered that or not, we don't know. But it was commonplace to have all these people come and oh, put on a big wail outside the house to see, wow, lots of people are really grieving for this family. So there's this huge commotion, tons of people out there weeping and wailing loudly for Jairus' family. 
And Jesus, in verse 39, and when he entered, he said to them, this whole crowd, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they switched from their wailing to laughing. Verse 40, and they laughed at him. But he put them all outside. Get out of this house. We don't need your theatrics. We don't need your drama. Get out. So he kicked them out of the house. And then he took with him the child's father and mother, verse 40, and his, his three disciples to where she was. In verse 41, he took her by the hand and he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. It just echoes to me, Lazarus, come out. Right? Just the power in Jesus' words. Arise. Amazing. Amazing. His words, his power, his compassion for this girl. Verse 42, and immediately she got up. We don't know how long she had been sick, ill, laying, bedridden. We don't know. But immediately she got up. She began walking for she was 12 years old. So they throw in that for she was 12 years old just to show, okay, well, she wasn't like a baby. That's, you know, common that infants died in that day. And so she was about 12. That's why she could walk. It wasn't like all of a sudden this baby could walk. That wasn't part of the miracle. This 12-year-old girl who is dead is now alive. So you think about, you rewind both of these people's stories for the last 12 years. And, and there's no indication that this girl was sick prior. It just seems like it was like a sudden illness or a palliative kind of situation at the end. But this woman, on the one hand, poor, rejected, outcast, 12 years, suffering. And this girl, now 12 years of age, but now has died. But Jesus has resurrected them both. He gave the woman with the bleeding disorder a new life. He gave this girl new life. She got up and began walking. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Mom, dad, the disciples. Can you believe it? She was dead and now she's alive. She's walking among us. I can't imagine being overcome by the emotion of these parents. Jairus, who had thought that he had been away from his daughter when she breathed her last, the grief that he would have felt, and yet he gets to see her live again. They were overcome with amazement. No words. Amazing what Jesus can do. And the beauty of these two intertwined stories is the consistency of his care. It was not... Varying, It was not biased. It was consistent. He didn't stop and say he's more important. She's not important. Or, oh, this will be a real cool display of this poor bleeding woman that I'm going to show everybody how I care for. It was neither or. It was both and. And so with us, we have to think, well, what opportunities is God presenting for me to express caring and compassion towards people and what, what helps me determine, if I have limited time or limited resources, how do I determine where to use that? Is it what's easiest, what, what's most comfortable and most um, normal to me? Or is it soaked in prayer 
and asking God, well, if you had to choose between the woman or Jairus, what would you have chosen? It's incredible to think, because he didn't. He just did both, and obviously he had the power and the ability to. But we have to ask ourselves about the compassion in ourselves and whether it's consistent or not. Consistent with who Jesus is, how he's been compassionate to you and me, not based upon our status, not based upon our little amount of sin or our great amount of sin. He was consistent in his compassion for you and for me. For every single person you know that has been a recipient of his love and mercy and grace. He was consistent in his compassion. It's an incredible story. And so then we want to pray and ask God, make me consistent like that. Not bias, not showing favoritism, not doing always what's easy. Help me to do what's right, as Jesus did. This is a beautiful story of the power of God through Christ. What he did in resurrecting lives and what he did for us. He had compassion on us and gave us new life too. So may we use that new life to go with consistent compassion to all that he brings before us. And not weigh uh, pros and cons of a person, but instead see two souls. And ask God, which one needs you? Need through me, how may I serve these people? May we be like that, like Jesus, consistent in our compassion. Let's pray. Oh God, your mercy is amazing. Uh, we are so not like this. At times we are uh, preferring uh, many things. We prefer ourselves above all things. And so we are asking for your forgiveness when we have shown favoritism, when we prefer certain people, certain races or ages, certain intellectual abilities. The people we gravitate towards, there's nothing wrong with our friendships, but God, may we be those who are consistent in our care and compassion for all the world. Everyone that you bring before us to mind, whether it's near or far, we just pray that we would be consistent as Christ was consistent to um, just see souls before us who need you. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be wise. Help us to use all that we have for your honor and glory in everyone's lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.